Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. I went to bed that night around midnight. I heard barking. We had a black lab, Max. He quit barking after a few moments, and I didn't hear another sound at all until 3 a.m. I'd wake to the sound of our door slamming up against the wall. I could see the silhouette of of someone standing over us. Immediately, gun blasts begin to go off. I'm starting to scream, Penny screaming. We're being riddled with gunfire. I'm getting hit. And I remember throwing my body over Penny, trying to protect her. I took several shots in the chest and took a blast in the face. And then that shot blew me out of bed. I'm laying down in a pool of blood, and I'm trying to speak, but I can't. And I could hear heavy breathing, somebody standing over me, and I could hear the reloading of the gun. I was shot 11 times. I could hear my wife screaming, saying, where's Terry, where's Terry? I would hear the voice of the killers. He told her, why don't you just die? He put the, the sword that he had to her throat and he rammed it in and he slid her, nearly decapitating her. And every time she'd take a breath, I could hear the gurgling of the blood come out of her neck. That was Terry Caffey talking about the moment when his life changed forever. It was early Saturday morning on March 1st, 2008. Still dark outside, when his family is roused from their sleep by intruders armed with a 22 pistol and a samurai sword. Terry is shot multiple times, in his body, his face. His wife, Penny, struck so hard with a sword, her head is almost cut off. But the intruders weren't done. They then attacked the couple's children. Unable to move, Terry could hear his sons pleading for their lives. The 13-year-old shot in the face and the youngest victim, just eight years old, stabbed in the back of his neck. Both left to die. His 16-year-old daughter, ominously silent. Then, the house is set on fire in an apparent attempt to destroy evidence. It was a tragedy of epic proportions, and it will go down as one of the most disturbing and senseless murders in Texas history. But the one thing the intruders never expected when they left the house that night, Terry would survive. He would survive and be able to crawl out of that fire and point the finger because he recognized one of the intruders. In this episode, you'll hear Terry tell his story in his own words, how he escaped from the house, what led up to that night. Could it have been avoided? and you'll discover the one thing he never saw coming, the identity of the mastermind behind these brutal murders. You're listening to Episode 1 of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love. Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil.
My Bessie Stormburst Low Top and Weekend Sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. The Cappies were your average American family. They lived in a modest two-story house set deep in the woods just outside of the small town of Alba, Texas, a rural community a little over 60 miles east of Dallas. Terry and Penny Caffey had moved their family to Alba to be closer to Miracle Faith Baptist Church, where they served as youth ministers. Penny was an employee of Meals on Wheels, working as a substitute driver delivering meals to members of the community. On Sunday, she played the piano at Miracle Faith Baptist Church. Her husband Terry was a home health aide and a lay preacher. The couple had three children. Their 16-year-old daughter Erin worked as a car hop at the local Sonic. 13-year-old Matthew, who was also known as Bubba, was in the seventh grade. Eight-year-old Tyler was a fourth grader. At the time, there were a little under 500 people living in the entire town of Alba. This was the kind of place where you didn't lock your doors at night, where everyone knew everyone else. Moms held bake sales for the local school. Parents never had to arrange playdates for kids because they had the run of the neighborhood. It was a close-knit community, small-town America. Friendly, safe, sheltered. Alba was as close to Pleasantville as you would ever find in the real world. By all accounts, the Caffies were well-liked. Neighbors would say that the kids were shy and very well-mannered. Sixteen-year-old Erin was the oldest and the most outgoing of the three. She was a petite, pretty blonde who was always smiling. She was known for her beautiful singing voice, and she sang gospel solos almost every Sunday at Miracle Faith Baptist. The whole family was involved in the church. They attended Bible study on Wednesday nights, 
church every Sunday, and they set aside several hours each week to rehearse gospel songs. Penny played piano, Bubba was on guitar and harmonica, and Aaron sung the vocals. To say faith was very important to this family would be a huge understatement. Terry and Penny had met at a revival meeting when she was 21 and he was 24, and they felt from the beginning that their strong Baptist faith had always bound them together. Above their driveway hung a poly cedar plank with the inscription, The Caffies, Joshua 24:15. The quote reads, If it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Terry had memorized the verse. He always said it was a reminder that he and Penny had chosen a righteous path. The evening of March 1st had started out like any other with the whole family engaging in a pillow fight, laughing, cutting up, just having a good time together. As far as Terry remembers, it was a pretty typical night. There was nothing indicating that there was something wrong. I know what you're thinking. This probably sounds unbelievable. I mean, seriously, a pillow fight? If you wrote this for a movie, you would think, come on, does this really happen? But it did happen in this family, and it did happen in Alba, Texas. But as you know, this night was, in fact, far from typical. Because just below the surface, simmering in the shadows. It wouldn't be but just a few hours before things went terribly, terribly wrong, unimaginably wrong, because it was just a few hours before intruders would burst into his bedroom firing a gun. Terry shot up in bed and threw his body over Penny to shield her. A shot in the face blew Terry out of bed and onto the floor. As he lay there unable to move, one of the intruders walked over and shot him in the back. It was dark, he could barely see, but one of the intruders had a sword. A sword. He could hear the sword strike Penny over and over. The intruder yelling at her to, quote, die, bitch, die. To Terry, the words and the way the intruder said them sounded very personal. This couldn't be just random, but he was struggling, struggling to remain conscious and barely able to do so. The intruders also seemed to know that there were children in the house, and they were not about to leave them alive as potential witnesses. With Penny now silent beside him, Terry could hear the intruders, heavy boots pounding as they climbed the stairs up to the children's rooms. This meant something as well. They knew where the stairs were. They knew there were rooms upstairs. They knew those children were there. I really began to panic. I can't save her, but I can get, I gotta get to my children. I'm trying to get up and I'm just slipping them on blood. Matthew was shot in the head and in the back of the neck. They went into the next room, which was Aaron's room, and Tyler was hiding in the closet. And they took these this samurai sword, and they each took turns stabbing Tyler to death. 
I'm assuming at this point that even Aaron was dead, and I just collapsed face down. So for all Terry knew, his wife and his three children were all dead. He's been shot multiple times, and he was severely injured. At this point, as hard as it is, try to put yourself in Terry's position. Shock is just the beginning of his mental state at this point. Understand, he's in bed completely asleep, and the first thing he hears is a gunshot, and that gunshot leads to him getting hit in the face with a projectile that knocks him out of bed. So you hear the sound, and at the same time, it's like a mule kicking you in the face. You have no idea what's happening. And then the next thing you know, somebody's standing over you, and they're shooting you again and again. And then, assuming that you're dead, they move on to your wife, who obviously is paralyzed in the dark, hearing these gunshots, not knowing what is happening, and she begins to get hacked to death with the first blow nearly decapitating her. Now, Terry is lying there in the dark, in his own blood, excruciating pain, hearing his wife being hacked to death. At this point, he can barely move. His muscles are twitching. He's unable to think. He's unable to gather himself. And the fact that Terry passed out may have saved his life that night because it appears the intruders did believe that they had gotten rid of everyone in the family before they left. Who knows how much of an examination they did, but certainly common sense would lead them to believe that mother and father were dead. It was a bloodbath. He had been shot in the face, the back, shot multiple times. But they had made a major mistake. They had underestimated Terry's will to live. They had underestimated his determination to pull through. Because beside that bed, face down in the floor, that man, that father, was still alive. Terry wasn't sure how much time had passed, how long he had been unconscious, but when he woke up, he could smell smoke. He could feel heat. So he knew immediately it wasn't gun smoke. At first he thought he must be dreaming. But as black smoke poured into the bedroom, he realized this house is on fire. I remember waking up and I felt real hot. I realized that the house was on fire. I'm choking on blood and smoke. And as I climbed over the bed trying to get away from those flames, that's when I landed on the floor beside Penny. And just to see what I saw was just, can't even put it into words. I just witnessed the murders of my family. Terry again tried to get upstairs to his children, but he couldn't because the flames kept pushing him back into the bedroom. He could hear windows popping now from the heat, and he kept thinking that the noise meant the intruders were still inside the house. Remember now, it's pitch black in the bedroom. The air was thick with smoke, and Terry was incredibly weak. So he can't see, he can't breathe, he doesn't have the strength or the agility to move. But when he went looking for Penny, he climbed over their bed and fell on the other side. 
and that's when he saw her. The sight horrified him. His wife, Penny, the love of his life, the mother of his children, was dead. Her head nearly completely separated from being struck by the sword. That's when Terry realized the one thing he could do was get out of that house, save himself to tell this story, to help bring these intruders to justice. This was especially important because what the intruders also didn't realize was that Terry had in fact recognized one of them. The person who shot him was his 16-year-old daughter Aaron's boyfriend. And Terry was determined to survive and point the finger at this person. I knew I needed to get help and get to my neighbors, but they lived about 400 yards away. I'm on my belly and I'm literally just dragging my body like that. At, at some points I would find trees and I'd pull myself up, hold them, and I would take one or two steps and I would clap to fall face down in the dirt. I said, God, just let me make it to my neighbors. McAfee's nearest neighbor was Tommy Gaston. As you heard Terry say, Tommy's house was only some 400 yards away, but remember, this was out in the country, and 400 yards had to seem like 400 miles to Terry because he's got multiple gunshot wounds. He's bleeding terribly. He's in shock. And this is way out in the country, and the Caffey's house was literally in the middle of the woods. This was rough terrain, and Terry was critically injured. His entire right side was limp, but he managed to climb, drag himself through the master bedroom window, and he hid behind a propane tank, and when he finally got up to try to run, he took a few steps and just collapsed. He couldn't see Tommy's house through the trees, but he knew the way. He would take a few steps, then fall and crawl. Then he had forced himself up to try again, and at one point he fell 10 to 12 feet into the bottom of the creek. He was face down in the water and had a difficult time getting his face up out of the water and almost drowned in that creek. And when you fall down, that means you've got to climb up. And he felt like he would never make it. Each time he would look back, he could see his house engulfed in flames. Put yourself in his position now. He's expecting that every time he falls, it will be his last time. He looks back and sees not just his house ablaze, but a house that contains his entire family burning to the ground. But he kept going. He kept dragging himself through the woods. It had to seem like forever before he glimpsed a light in the kitchen window of his neighbor's house. Terry said he focused on that light like it was a North Star he kept going. It took Terry over an hour to travel that short distance before reaching Tommy Gaston's door. But Terry was a man on a mission. All he wanted to do was live long enough to tell the authorities, tell somebody who had done this horrible deed, who had murdered his family. I gotta identify the killers. The door slings open and there's Tommy Gaston, my neighbor, looking down at me and he just has this look of shock on his face. I said, Penny and the boys are gone. Charlie did it, Charlie did it. The Charlie that Terry identified was 19-year-old Charlie Wilkinson. 
Terry hadn't recognized the boy when he burst into Terry and Penny's dark bedroom firing, but after the intruders went upstairs, he could hear his 13-year-old son Bubba pleading with one of them. He began to cry out, no, Charlie, no, please don't do this. Why are you doing this? And for the very first time, I realized Aaron's boyfriend, Charlie, was the killer. I really began to panic. So who was Charlie Wilkinson? How could he do something so horrible? Everyone who knew the boy was shocked. In fact, most people in town would call Charlie a nice guy. Maybe he wasn't the most polished guy in the world. He was a little rough around the edges. He drove a beat-up 91 Ford Explorer that had to be jump-started, and friends said he always seemed to be broke. But he was a pretty nice guy, or so it seemed. He was good-looking in an unassuming kind of way. He nearly always wore black cowboy boots and an oversized black western hat. In fact, on MySpace, he went by the name Hillbilly. Charlie lived out in the country with his father, his stepmother, and his step-siblings and only saw his birth mother once or twice a year. He was an avid hunter. He spent much of his time fishing and tracking wild hogs through the brush like most of his friends, and like most of his friends, he knew his way around a firearm. He had used guns a lot. He was familiar. Although he had never been arrested and there were no serious disciplinary problems at school, some students called Charlie hot-headed. They knew how easy it was to get a rise out of him. One classmate remembered that some of the other kids would tease Charlie, pick at him until he would get angry. And when he did lose his temper, every once in a while, he would strike his desk or storm out of the classroom. But he usually always walked away from a fight. Charlie met Aaron at the Sonic a few weeks before the start of his senior year. He had just returned home after completing boot camp at Fort Sill. Fort Sill is an army base in Oklahoma, and he had been up there with his Texas National Guard unit, and he planned to go on active duty in the military once he graduated. Charlie said when he first saw Aaron, he was instantly attracted to her, so much so that every day after that, he would show up at Sonic just so he could see her. Working at Sonic was Aaron's first job, first job ever. In July of 2007, after she had turned 16 and got her driver's license, her parents had given her an old Chevy pickup, and she had used it to drive herself to work. Co-workers remembered how sheltered Aaron seemed. One co-worker said it was like she just gushed innocence, like she was seeing the world for the first time, and she was enjoying her newfound freedom. Aaron was bubbly and happy, and she seemed to thrive on attention. She was the only car hop who delivered her orders wearing roller skates. For Halloween, she dressed up as a 50s car hop, coasting around the Sonic in a homemade pink and white poodle skirt with a pink scarf knotted at her neck. A lot of guys flirted with her, and she appeared surprised when they asked for her phone number. Shortly after Halloween... Charlie worked up the nerve to ask Aaron out, and she was instantly taken with him. For his part, Charlie was completely infatuated. His friend said that Charlie talked about Aaron nonstop 24-7. The Caffies would not allow Charlie to take Aaron out alone. But even with that restriction, the two teenagers still managed to spend much of their time together. In fact, as the months went on, well, they just grew inseparable. 
Charlie began attending Aaron's church at Miracle Faith, and even the pastor thought Charlie seemed like a nice boy. As parents, Terry and Penny Caffey, they were strict with Aaron. They clearly wanted to protect their daughter. Some would say they were overprotective. Before getting a job at Sonic, the only place Aaron had been allowed to socialize was at Bible study and Sunday school. The Caffey's kids had been homeschooled ever since Aaron was 13, and the family had moved to Alba from a small town about an hour away. Aaron and her brothers had initially enrolled in their new public school. She started the eighth grade at Raines Junior High, and Bubba and Tyler attended Raines Elementary. But that fall, an incident at Junior High had upset Terry and Penny. A girl who had been showing interest in Aaron had kissed her in the hallway. Well, the Caffeys just thought that was terrible. They quickly pulled their children out of school a month into the academic year, and Penny began teaching them a Bible-based curriculum at home. She and Terry hoped the individual instruction might benefit Aaron, who had been diagnosed with ADD and had lagged behind her classmates. But now, here was Terry pointing the finger at Charlie, saying that he broke into their house with the intention of murdering their family. How could such a good kid turn into someone who could do something so horrible? Did anyone see this coming at all? Were there any red flags? To answer that, it's important to look at Charlie and Aaron's relationship. We've already talked about how sheltered Aaron was, but she was also 16. And like a lot of teenagers, she was straining to break free from her parents' grasp. Now let me talk about that for a minute. Reference has been made to the fact that they were very protective and that they were overprotective. And I want to be very clear here. The natural order of things, developmentally, is early on, children are very dependent on their parents. You all know, if you've raised your children, in the early going, you couldn't peel them off your leg, right? I mean, they're just all over you. They wanted to go to the mall, wanted you to go with them. They were right there with you. But there comes a time when it's like, Okay, it's not cool to hang out with mom and dad anymore. Now, drop me off at the mall. Walk behind me so people don't think I'm with mommy and daddy. Because it's the natural order of things as kids develop and they develop independence, they want to be on their own. They want to strike out on their own. So they begin to separate from their parents and begin to feel more self-reliant, feel more independent. And the more overprotective a parent is, sometimes that separation can actually become rebellion. That division from mom and dad can become more radical if the control has been more stringent. Sometimes it's just a natural separation that kind of flows because the control was not that much. And other times it can require a sharp break where they make a 90-degree turn and break away from their parents. Did that play a part here? Was Erin making a radical break from her parents because she had been tightly controlled? In retrospect, people talked about how much she enjoyed that freedom and how everything seemed like a new discovery. And Charlie wasn't the first guy she had been attracted to. 
One day at a church fellowship meeting, Miracle Face's new youth director came upon Aaron making out with a teenage boy. Several kids had seen her sitting on a picnic table behind the church kissing the boy while he eased his hand up her shirt. Aaron had invited him over to her house before and had actually considered him to be her boyfriend. Aaron's behavior at Miracle Faith did not sit well with Terry and Penny, who quickly separated the two teenagers that day. They were embarrassed by her behavior. Terry told her, you're never seeing that boy again. And being the good daughter, she listened to her father. But soon after the incident at Miracle Faith, Aaron met Charlie. Terry would later say that when Charlie began coming around, Erin's relationship with her parents really started to change. She really started to break away from them. She really started to rebel. She really started to break the rules, sneak around, ignore their instructions. Charlie began dropping by the Sonic every afternoon during Erin's half-hour break, and at night he hung out at the Caffey's house. Erin had a 9 p.m. curfew. That's right, 9 p.m. And according to Terry, sure enough, at 9 p.m., Charlie was always still there. But even though the Caffeys insisted that Charlie leave, he and Aaron would still linger outside saying goodnight for another 20 or 30 minutes, pushing the envelope, disrespecting their instructions. And then when Charlie did finally go, Aaron quickly called him on the phone, and they talked until her phone curfew was over. Make no mistake, Terry and Penny were conscientious parents. But anybody with kids, especially teenagers, know you cannot keep watch over them 24 hours, seven days a week. So in spite of Terry and Penny's involvement, Aaron's relationship with Charlie was growing. It was getting serious. And the fact that the parents were attempting to limit it so actively might very well have been throwing gas on a fire. The fact that he was off-limits, the fact that that relationship was taboo, might have just put a little more sizzle in the relationship for her. And for Charlie's part, he was showering her with affection and gifts, and she ate it up. She had never experienced that before. He was constantly complimenting her, basically telling Aaron the same things her parents did, but only this had a romantic spin to it. At this point... Aaron had a very different button being pushed. Up until this point, it was all about family. It was all about mom and dad and siblings in the family unit. But now, this was somebody else telling her she was beautiful and interesting and wonderful, and it made her feel different. Remember, she's 16. She's very hormonal at this point. She's sexually sensitive. She's really tuned in to the social environment. She likes being part of a couple. She likes being involved with someone aside from her family. In December, Erin asked her parents if she could go back to public school. Her brothers had already re-enrolled that fall. 13-year-old Bubba had told them how much he missed his friends, and Penny and Terry reluctantly had given in, but not with Aaron. Aaron had remained at home. This time, though, the Caffeys were eager to free up time for Penny to earn some extra income, and so they agreed to let Aaron go back to public school right before Christmas. She enrolled in high school as a freshman, and she and Charlie almost immediately became virtually inseparable. 
They ate lunch together. They walked down the hall hand in hand. Sometimes they slipped away to Charlie's pickup to fool around. Of course, Terry and Penny still had no idea how quickly the relationship was progressing. By that time, they had even begun allowing the two teenagers to go out for dinner every now and then, just as long as they adhered to Aaron's curfew. A lot of times, Aaron and Charlie would just go over to a friend's house where they could be alone. And reportedly, it was just after Christmas that they had sex for the first time. Understand, we're talking about a very protected young girl here. And we're talking about a girl that had very strong values instilled in her for 16 years. So for her to do this, for her to have sex with this boy, having these very conservative values imprinted upon her for all of this time, had to be a big decision on her part. So for her to do this, this was a rite of passage for her. For her to make this decision, this was very likely not something that she did offhandedly. Because of the values instilled, this was a conscious decision that she made, and it was a rite of passage from child or teenager to grown-up. I strongly suspect that when she crossed that threshold, her loyalties, her commitments, her priorities shifted. This was no one-night stand, and it was no one-night stand for Aaron or Charlie. Because she had not been in a lot of relationships before, she didn't have a lot of experience on how to modulate those emotions, and she went to full intimacy without the experience of how to take steps in a relationship. My point is, I believe that this event was a watershed event for her. She fell and fell hard at that point. One night, not long after their first sexual encounter, Charlie presented Aaron with his grandmother's engagement ring. He didn't call it that. He told her it was a promise ring. But even though it was not a formal proposal, he told Aaron that it meant he was declaring his intentions for her. He loved Aaron, and he wanted to be with her. Now, Penny noticed the ring on Aaron's finger a few days later at a church function, and she was not even almost happy. She told Terry, who went looking for Aaron, right then. When he found her, she was showing her new ring to a group of girls. Terry told Aaron to give him the ring and ask where he could find Charlie. He found Charlie outside the fellowship hall playing basketball. He pulled him aside and told him the ring was totally inappropriate. He was promising himself to Aaron, but she was 16 years old and way too young for anything so serious. The next day, Terry and Penny set both Aaron and Charlie down at the cafe house and told them their relationship was way too deep, had gone way too far, and that if they just slowed it down, they would allow it to continue. They would support them. Both Aaron and Charlie seemingly agreed. I've got to interject here. This really speaks to the naivete of the parents. You cannot legislate emotions. And these two were, quote, in love, close quotes. Do you really think 
you're going to take a couple that are infatuated in the honeymoon phase of falling in love, talking every chance they get, spending every second they possibly can together, pining for each other mentally, emotionally, physically, behaviorally, and say, okay, you need to put the brakes on here. And they go, okay, no problem. We'll just go back to being friends. We'll play video games instead of have sex. Uh, Come on. That is not going to happen. And the fact that they both seemingly agreed should be a huge red flag that you're being lied to. Had they objected, had they said, come on, that's not fair. We feel the way we feel. Had they negotiated, had they pushed back, anything would have been better. They say, you two need to just slow it down and not spend so much time together. Yeah, okay. I mean, clearly, Penny and Terry had become very uneasy with how fast the teen's relationship seemed to be moving, and they didn't know the half of it. Terry was especially concerned because, as it turns out, he had never cared for Charlie, and he was not happy about how much time the high school senior was spending with his 16-year-old daughter. He tried to isolate her from her family and friends, and I believe that, um, you know, he was convincing her that, you know, your parents are too strict, you just, you're, you're not, they're not allowed you have fun, you know, let's go out and have fun, don't listen to them, they don't love you like I love you. And so she began to make one bad choice after the other. As hard as Terry had tried to be supportive of Aaron in her choice of boyfriends, he was not impressed with Charlie. Terry felt Charlie was arrogant. Go back to when we talked earlier about the curfew. A curfew is set, and you walk right out the door, right in front of the parents, and stand there for 30 minutes in abject defiance of what the parents have just said. They said, the curfew is 9 o'clock. So you move 10 feet outside a door at 9 o'clock and stand there knowing the parents are looking at you through the window for half an hour and completely disregard their wishes? That is arrogant. It is belligerent. It is defiant. And that is exactly how Terry saw it. He had just never gotten over Charlie's nonchalant attitude when they first met. Terry had come home from work that day to find Charlie had his leg slung over the side of Terry's armchair. Hear what I just said. Terry's armchair. In a home, there's a daddy chair. There's a mama chair. I mean, there's a pattern in a home, right? There's a place where dad always sits and mom always sits. And he comes home and there's boyfriend sitting in daddy's chair with his leg slung over the arm. As Terry stood there, the teenager had not even bothered to stand up and shake his hand. He didn't get out of his chair. He didn't stand up and shake his hand. He didn't say, glad to meet you, Mr. Caffey. He just stayed in his chair with his legs slung over the side. Complete disrespect. And respect is a big thing. And Terry felt if Charlie couldn't show him respect, how could the teenager respect his daughter? Add that to the curfew. Add that to a lot of little things that were going on, and it just didn't add up for Terry. So early on, Terry had reservations about the relationship, but while he felt them, he didn't act on them. He just basically hoped, you know, if I leave this alone, it'll flicker out. Either Charlie will move on or Aaron will move on. It's best if I just kind of let this take its own course. But when 
Charlie gave Aaron a ring, it became clear that this was serious. So from that time on, the Caffeys began limiting Aaron's time with Charlie to once a week in their home under their watch, or so they thought. And as you might expect, Erin was furious with her parents. She confided in her aunt that she planned on running away to be with Charlie, and she was going to do it when she turned 17. I get that hindsight is twenty twenty. You look back at a relationship and you say, well, I was naive to believe when they said, oh, yeah, sure, we'll just cool it. I was naive to not act on my gut when I see that this person is disregarding authority, is ignoring her parents and their wishes. It's very clear that better choices could have been made. And then when they say, okay, once a week here under my supervision, but you're going to go to school where we're not and he is, so we're just going to assume that you aren't going to see him at school. And you're going to go to work, and we're just going to assume he's not going to show up there. I mean, come on. So all they did was push the relationship underground. They wanted to keep an eye on it, but all they did was push it into the shadows where they couldn't see it. By now it was January, and Aaron's relationship with her parents was continuing to deteriorate. More and more, Aaron and her mother were at odds. Aaron once called Charlie in tears, telling him that Penny had slapped her in the heat of an argument. For their parts, Penny and Terry began to see a new side of Aaron. Remember how I described her early on. I mean, it was sweetness personified, right? She had once been so sweet, compliant, just a very involved member of the family. Now she was not compliant, she was defiant. She was talking back to her mother and her father. She began to dress differently than she normally would. Just messy, according to Terry. She wasn't interested in the things she used to be interested in. She seemed to have lost her smile and had distanced herself from her youth group. It got to the point where she didn't even want to sing at church anymore. So you have to think, is this just evolution? Is this just normal teenage rebellion or was it something more? It's very obvious to me that she was getting her needs met in a very different way. She had a substitute source for her need to belong, for her need for acceptance. And she was in new territory now. She had been in the conservative, behave yourself, orderly, religious life, and now she was with the bad boy. And... She was walking on the wild side, and it was exciting to her. Those other things now seemed childlike. They seemed outdated. Terry and Penny tried talking to Aaron, but she just kept shutting down. Terry began to get suspicious that Aaron was doing things she shouldn't be doing, like drinking. He just hoped it wasn't drugs. Then in early February, Penny overheard Aaron giggling one night after her phone curfew, and she discovered that Aaron had sneaked her cell phone into her room and was talking to Charlie. Well, that was it. Penny had had it. She grounded Aaron on the spot. She and Terry took away her car keys and her phone, and for weeks her parents drove her to and from school. But as far as Aaron was concerned, the worst part about her punishments meant that Charlie's weekly visits to the house were suspended. Even at Miracle Faith, people began sensing that things were just not right at the cafe home. Penny was quiet and withdrawn for most of February, and she turned down going on a women's church retreat saying she needed to spend more time with her family. 
At church functions, Erin, who had always been so cheery and enthusiastic, was now aloof and distracted. She just could not care less what was going on. Then in late February, around the time Erin's behavior was spinning out of control, Terry's father became ill. One day when Terry went to check on him, he found him dead of a heart attack. And even though Terry hadn't been especially close to his dad, the family certainly paid him tribute. At his funeral, they performed Amazing Grace in his honor. Terry and Bubba played harmonica with Penny on piano. But again, Aaron was out of sorts. She turned in a listless, half-hearted performance, and her cousin, who by far did not have Aaron's natural talent, outshone her. By now, even the pastor's wife noticed a change in Aaron. A few days after the family buried Terry's dad, Penny stopped by the local library and her sister had seen a disturbing post on MySpace and had told Penny she needed to check it out. Sure enough, when Penny went online to look at Charlie's MySpace profile, apparently for the first time, she was shocked. On his page, Charlie had comments about having sex and getting drunk, something no parent wants to read from their daughter's boyfriend. Charlie's profile showed him with a bottle of Jack Daniels, but even worse, one of Charlie's friends had posted on his page saying, quote, bring your bitch girlfriend over this weekend and we can get laid. As far as Penny and Terry were concerned, that was the final straw. This relationship had to end. When Aaron came home from school that afternoon, Penny and Terry were waiting. Terry was never home that early, and he could tell Aaron was nervous. Terry told her in no uncertain terms that her relationship with Charlie was over. You are breaking up with him today. Here's the problem with that. Do you as a parent have the right to dictate what your child can and cannot do? And the answer is yes. Legally, you have the right to do that. They're minor. You're the adult. You have the right to tell them what they can and cannot do. But let's talk common sense in the real world. Can you enforce your dictate? If you tell her you're going to break up with him, you're not to ever see him again, are you prepared to back that up? Can you police that? Can you enforce that? Can you apply that? And of course, the answer is no. You cannot build a fence high enough. You cannot watch her enough. If she wants to be with him, you can make it tougher, but you cannot make it impossible. Because she does have a job, she does go to school, she does get outside your supervision. So you don't want to dictate terms that you cannot enforce. Because when she determines that you cannot enforce it, then you might as well not have said it. With the way Aaron had been acting, her parents expected major pushback. But remember what the reaction was when they sat them down together and said, you're going to have to slow down? They said, sure. No problem. Same thing here. To Terry and Penny's surprise, Erin did not protest. Instead, she told them that she had wanted to break things off with Charlie for a while, but had not been sure how. They figured this maybe was why Erin had been so moody lately. But whatever the reason, it was a huge relief to Terry and Penny, who had expected her to just pitch a fit, get upset, yell, scream, pout, cry. Instead, the family talked to the steps that Aaron needed to take next, and before the family left for Bible study, Aaron promised she would end things with Charlie. Now, she would later tell Terry that she knew her parents were aware of her drinking, but she was really afraid that they were going to find out about her having sex. That was one of the reasons she was trying to stay away from Charlie, 
but it wasn't going to be that easy. The next day, when Aaron dropped Bubba off at his junior high, Charlie began harassing her, banging on her car, telling her they were meant to be together. Terry and Penny heard about the incident when the kids came home, and Terry remembers lying in bed that night and Penny worrying that Charlie might not leave Aaron alone. But Terry reassured her. He didn't figure Charlie would be much trouble. We're talking just a few days before Charlie would enter the house and murder the family. But everything seemed to calm down in the Caffey household for a few days. And then March 1st rolled around. That night, there was only one officer on duty in the Raines County Sheriff's Office when the 911 call came in just after 4.30 in the morning. All the deputy knew was that there had been a shooting at the Caffey residence. As he approached the Caffey house, he could see that it was on fire and that it had been burning for some time. The structure was engulfed in flames and the roof had already begun to buckle under its own weight. The deputy radioed his dispatcher to send out the county's volunteer fire department and he hurried down the road to the neighbor's house because that's where the 911 call had originated. When Tommy Gaston opened the door for the deputy, he immediately spotted Terry on the living room floor. Terry had been shot a number of times and his face and upper body were caked with blood. Frankly, it did not look like he was going to make it. Later on, Tommy Gaston would tell people that he thought it was a miracle that he was still alive. As paramedics loaded Terry into an ambulance, he was in and out of consciousness, but before the ambulance pulled away, he pointed the finger at Charlie. The detectives were incredulous. Charlie had fished with their sons. The boys had all gone four-wheeling together. As a matter of fact, on the way over to the crime scene, one of the deputies even spotted Charlie's car parked outside a nearby trailer. This was such a small community, they even knew what Charlie had probably been doing at the trailer. Everybody knew Charlie sometimes hung out with his friend, Charles, other brother, so the boys could drink. Assistant Attorney General for the state of Texas, Lisa Tanner, explains what happened next. Charlie Wilkinson was found within just an hour or two of the murders, laying on a mattress in the back of Charles Wade's brother's trailer. They noticed a pistol laying right by his hand, which turned out to be the murder weapon. There were bullets and ammunition found. They were about to let Charlie put his boots on, and there were what appeared to be blood droplets on the boots. They took him in to custody right then. With Charlie in custody at the county jail, the deputies obtained a warrant to search the trailer for any evidence that might tie Charlie to the Caffey crime scene. By now, it was later in the day on Saturday and the Caffey's house had burned to the foundation. Firefighters had begun sifting through the rubble and had pulled Penny and the two boys' bodies out of the fire. But something was off. As hard as the firefighters searched the wreckage, they could not find Aaron's body. There was no evidence that she had been in the house. Remember, Terry had been so sure that his entire family had been murdered, but now the police were looking at a very different possibility. If Aaron hadn't been murdered, had Charlie been so obsessed with her that he had kidnapped her? Was he hiding her somewhere? If that were the case, it might still be possible to save her. Before the deputies took another crack at interviewing Charlie, they returned to the trader to search for additional evidence. 
Inside, they found spent shell casings scattered across the carpet. And when they picked up a black and white western shirt, the kind worn by Charlie, they found something else. They recently used condom. It appeared that Charlie had been having sex. With Erin? If so, where was she? What had Charlie done with her? One of the officers was looking through piles of clothing, and he came across what he thought was a large stuffed animal. And when he touched the hair, he realized it was a human being, and that was Aaron Caffey. Aaron was found under a pile of clothing by a closet in one of the back rooms of the trailer, laying in a fetal position. She appeared to be disoriented, and she said, where am I? When officers attempted to ask her questions, all she said was fire. Aaron was alive and police were beginning to piece together what they now thought had happened. The new theory was that Charlie had entered the cafe house the night before with the intention of murdering Aaron's family and abducting Aaron so he could have her to himself. Was this all because Aaron had told Charlie she wanted to break up with him? The deputies tried to question Aaron, but she was confused and it appeared that she might have been drugged. The belief was that she was a victim. So she was taken to the hospital for a sexual assault examination. One of the most striking things about Erin is that she made reference to the fire in the house while she was in the house, but she did not smell of smoke at all. That lack of smoke smell will be important later, but at the time, it was just a passing thought. The important thing was the police had found Erin and she was safe at the hospital and getting out. While this was going on, Terry was at another hospital in serious condition. As he was being prepped to undergo surgery, he learned the good news. Before I was rushed into surgery, my sister came to me and told me that my daughter Erin was alive. I heard that I had something to live for. With all Terry had been through, at least he had his daughter. You have to understand what Terry had been through at this point. Shot multiple times, seen his wife nearly decapitated, hearing his sons pleading for their lives as they're murdered, fearing that his daughter has been killed, and then finally, at least one piece of good news. His daughter is alive and well. As he rolls into surgery... He has someone to live for. He has someone to come out of that surgery and look forward to seeing his sweet and precious daughter. So into surgery he goes, and the investigation, well, it just keeps rolling on. While Aaron was at the hospital, Charlie was at the sheriff's office being questioned by detectives. Very early, they informed him there had been a surviving victim and that he had been identified as being one of the shooters. Once Charlie knew he had been identified, it didn't take long before he caved. What he told investigators turned their theories about what happened that night upside down. At the time, this was the most disturbing case I had ever seen. You know, none of this makes sense, and even to this day, it, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it was senseless. Terry was right when he said he heard intruders. That's intruders with an S. There were others involved in the murders that night, 
Under questioning, Charlie identified them. And that's when this story takes an unimaginable turn. When the accomplices are brought, the detectives are once again stunned. How could these average kids do something so horrible and why? But there was an even bigger shock to come. In separate interviews, each of the conspirators say the same thing, that there was someone else involved, someone who did not physically participate in the murders, but who was the true driving force. And that person was none other than the sweet, innocent, 16-year-old Aaron Caffey. Was this sweet, sheltered teenager actually the mastermind behind the murders of her mother and brothers? Or was this just a pre-agreed-upon attempt to deflect blame? Well, as you might expect, when they talked to Erin, she had a completely different story. You're going to hear all of that and more in Episode 2 of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love. Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil.